HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guests are Ned Benedict and Brian Garcia from Grand Cru Selections. We'll talk about how wine gets from the vineyard to your glass and some great wines and regions from around the world. We'll also taste the Bodega Chakra Pinot Noir from Argentina for our uh, weekly wine sip. And we may sneak in a Domaine du Pelican Arbois, maybe during the show or for the... uh, weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. All right, Ned Benedict and Brian Garcia hail from Grand Cru Selections. Grand Cru Selections is a New York-based wine importer and distributor working with some of the most passionate and sought-after winemakers in the world. Their portfolio includes the likes of Marquis d'Angerville, Rumier, Rouleau, Simone Bizet, Lafon, Chave, Giacomo Conterno, Chakra, which we're going to taste today, just to name a few. Did I get that right? Is anything you got it. active Sounds or inactive? Great. Okay. All right, guys, thank you for coming and welcome to the show. Um, I want to talk to you guys about your journey on how you got here. Um, you're with Grand Cru Selections. 
Uh, it's a wine import. It's a distributor. But both of you have a very colorful journey here. And let's start with you, Ned. You've been in New York a long time. Since the 80s. There's a lot of stuff to talk about. Right. And I know we could probably do a whole show on it. But, you know, Zoom, get the good stuff, Zoom through it. I came to, uh, to New York at some point in the 80s. I can't really remember exactly when. From? Uh, college. Okay. Upstate New York. And then I went to uh, work in restaurants because I didn't know what to do. That's where I picked up wine. Uh, I started to work at a series of tragic restaurants and ended up at a place called Keene's Chop House that still exists today. Still there. Pipes on the ceiling. Where uh, this guy named Phil uh, introduced me to Burgundy, which was strangely his thing and not I California would never associate first. Keens with Burgundy exactly right? it was his thing and there was you know it was the days of California Cap um, and then after that I ended up at Boulay went to Burgundy to taste Boulay out of Boulay in the early years yes the first one uh, the original one so that was in 1989-90 and that was downtown in Tribeca that right? was a, yeah. it's like nowhere land down there there you know the milk was right across the street <laughs> Uh, literally. So, and then uh, after that, I went, after there was five or six years there, and it closed in 96, the original. And I went to Oriole and was the wine director there for five years. After that, I went and worked in retail. Was there a wine director there before no. you? So you were sort of... I was the first one. Was that one. a Charlie Palmer call? Like that was gotta, 100% Charlie Palmer I got to get a guy in here to help me with yeah. the wine program? It was all Charlie. He was just like... He was into it. Everyone was not into it because there was another guy tiptoeing into the tip pool. Uh, so it wasn't a very popular move at the time. And then were other restaurants starting to ramp up the wine service? And he saw that, or it was just there a was feeling? many. You know, a lot of people don't remember. There was a lot of people had wine directors by '96. Okay. So if I went to a lunch, it was often 15, 20 people. Now they didn't have teams like they have today where you have six or seven psalms in a big restaurant, but everyone, all the major restaurants had a wine director. So there was, you know, blah, blah. 2002, I left, and I went to work retail at Zaki's, which is in Westchester. uh, Westchester. It's a big retailer. And as it is now, you know, very prominent, prolific. Right. Were they into the auction thing then? Uh, Maybe not. Yes, they were. They just started, right? Right. I had started buying wine at auction at Oriole, I think it was 90s. Well, I started in 96. I think it started in 94 or 92. And I met a lot of people buying wine at auction. And it was a great way to add wine to your list, especially in those days, Bordeaux and Burgundy. Sure. And to make your list look good, cool. And it was super inexpensive compared to today. Crazy. It was great. And, you know, I met people like Steve Verlin there and lots of, you know, under, you know super baller right. collectors. Right. So you're at Zaki's, what, five, seven years? So five or six years I left in 2009. Well, that's a long time for a place yeah. like that. I oh. wanted to learn how... I yeah, wanted Obviously to get you didn't s- mind it. No, a lot, parts of it were great. Right. It was very, it was very interesting. Uh, it's the complete opposite of the restaurant business in terms of wine. Right. I mean, you can get into that, but right. obviously it's, it's a completely different animal. And then left 2009 and 2010, we opened a importing company that was was it called grand crew it was called grand crew from the first day i think it was april 2010 
we had nothing to sell. I want to talk about that. Yeah. I, I want to talk about We had like six Brian. producers. Right. I want to talk about who you had, sure. how you get them. You know, we'll, we'll yeah, get yeah. into all of that stuff. So from 2010 to current, it's been Grand Crew. Grand Crew Selections. We'll talk great. Grand Crew collect Selections. We'll talk about, you know, the growth and all of that. Okay. Um, did the business exist before that as a consulting thing or it started as a wine distribution? We started a consulting company uh, almost before that in 2009. And uh, after that, I left that to start the importing company in 2010 because it's a heavy, heavily regulated industry. It, as you know from the right. SLA, so you can't do two things, and it was right. just—I had to be New separate. York. I had to be separate. So right. I started with private clients, which was a thing. But one of the—you started out with some good people, right? I mean, it was you and it was me. Uh, the original consulting company was me, David Beckwith, Robert Bohr. Robert, who's a superstar right. wine and guy. right, and uh, uh, Roy Welland, who was. The investor and the owner of Crew Restaurant and a crazy wine guy. Crew was you know crew, it was crew and, and Veritas. Crew and Veritas, right. where you know that was every Burgundy Bordeaux, right. you know, bottle of any significance. Yeah, you I know. don't. You're never going to see that again. Yeah, I just because there was you know, I don't think you you will. could drink Auvergnat on the list for eighty dollars, and nobody did because there was everything I, else. I think you're right about that. In the I mean, old days. Sparks, Pat Zeta, yeah, yeah. had a great Italian list and would sell wines, you know, at prices that they, they were actually the same as wine stores. Yeah. You know, he didn't mark it up too much. Those days are definitely gone. Yeah. All right, so we'll come back to you in a minute. We're here with uh, Brian Garcia, too, who's also known as the cork hoarder on social media. Brian, and I could say this in front of Ned, Brian's a little younger than me and Ned. You know, Ned and I have been around for a while. But Brian uh, has an interesting background, too. Brian, you've been at Grand Cru Selections four or five years, right? A little over four. But previous to that, you worked for a dear friend of mine, Gary Vaynerchuk, right? Exactly, yeah. So talk to me about that for a minute and what you were doing there. Well, I guess VaynerMedia was my my first job out of college. Was it? Yeah, it was... uh, Did you start as a community manager? Totally. Yeah, that was... was, uh, 1.0 1.0 social then. Right. Um, what year was that? Must have been 11. Okay. Maybe, yeah, 11. Yeah, it must have been mid-11. Okay. And uh, was into wine then, but was thinking about sort of the digital media social world as kind of an interesting place to start. When you say you were into wine, how old were you around then? I was, uh, I graduated in 10, so I was uh, 20, 22. And when you say you were into wine, it was just something you were interested in, you read about, yeah, you I tasted, mean, you were more inquisitive than most of your friends? It was just kind of a random curiosity that turned into a very serious obsession. Okay. I, uh, I was curious, and I kind of just dug deep. And was Vayner a coincidence? Because Gary was, or Vayner no. was a total coincidence. It was. I knew of Vayner because of Gary's persona in the wine world, right. but they were two very separate, right. very separate things. Right. So you were there. You went through, through the ranks at Vayner, yep. and then the moment came where Vayner didn't make sense. Yeah, I guess. At one point, I realized that I had kind of an interesting opportunity to make my hobby my career. Before, almost at the start of Vayner, I started taking wine and social media very seriously. It was, it was kind of an experiment. It was a way of me 
kind of connecting with uh, wine professionals and just gathering information and insight into to wine in general. Were you the guy taking pictures of bottles at restaurants? And yeah, totally. Yeah, and very, all that stuff? yeah, or even even more basic then was just asking people questions. You know, there were there was a much smaller group of wine professionals on social. It was then, actually it was actually really just Twitter then and now, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, we're talking four or five years ago. It yeah, exploded, right? Completely, completely. Yeah. So it was just me identifying kind of who was interesting in wine and who was talking about it and just engaging in conversation on Twitter. Did Vayner school you a little oh, for the totally, social thing? Totally. I mean, you were de- coming out of there. You were definitely ahead, oh, whether it was wine, sure. cars, or whatever. Completely. You just yeah. had a sense of all of that. Totally. I took it very seriously very early on. And that kind of that kind of insight would have not come out from anywhere right. except Gary. And so Dan. you're involved in sales, right? Exactly. Yeah. And when you talk about sales at a wine distribution importer, you're talking about what dealing with retail and restaurants. Exactly. I, Pro- I sell wine to retailers and sans wine buyers at restaurants. Literally walk in. Pretty much, yeah. You know, with the portfolio. Yeah. I mean, different restaurants have different strengths, so exactly. you know all of that. Yeah. So you're out there plugging away. Yeah. All right. So Grand Cru came into being around 2010. Right. So let's let's talk about that. Let's fir- let's first ask the why. Why did you do it? There were a bunch of guys that thought because we had talked about doing it in the past. Okay. 2008 happened, which really upset the collectors. You mean the crash? Yeah. That just screwed money up and... No, everybody got really tight. Yeah. And, you know, there was some auctions in late yeah. 2008, and I remember looking across the room at Tim Kopeck, and people were dumping Shav, Del Visa. There was one really... Damn! You know, people, like, there was collectors... There, I mean, you know, people thought they, were electric, they couldn't pay their electric bill or something, you know. So the first thing they did is start to liquidate stuff. It didn't last very long. I think it was in December of 2008. There was a whole bunch of stuff came out. And um, at that point, we had been talking about being an importer and distributing wines of people that we knew, who we'd been taking, talking to for a few years. And it just the timing was, it just happened. It was just now or never. So you start out of the gate with? Like five producers. It was a joke. Five I, guys I, that were not We that. started with, I think, Copan was our first. Wells got three. From California? Yeah, he was the a friend. Especially maker? a friend. Yeah, for, I'd known him since the Ori- my days at Oriole. Robert was very friendly with him at that time. He was uh, making good wines. Or he is making yeah, yeah. good wines. He was really good. Uh, and we had we were friends with Richard Betts. I don't know if you know Richard Betts. I know Richard from Colorado. And so we started to distribute his wines. And... Becky Wasserman, who's a very good friend, had, it could be a more complicated story than you want to hear the whole story. She had, she a, had led us, she had directed us to Louis-Michel Liget Belair and suggested that we start to distribute his wine in New York. That's a killer and connection, was, right? And that was, you know, Belair. sort of amazing. Liget Belair is one of the uh, sought-after Burgundy producers Right, in he, he's in Von Romanet and he's right. very fancy. right. So that, um, and that, then there was a couple other things I can't even remember the you know the timeline anymore. But we, you know, I mean, we went to our friends and tried to sell them wine, and a lot of them helped us out. So you, you st- this, this is the part that I'm interested in. So you start the business, right? You're a wholesaler distributor, right? You know, you know Wells, so you yeah. start distributing his stuff, right? A couple other guys, right. the Ligier Bel Air thing. Yeah. So now you sort of get your sea legs, right? 
now the process is to expand the portfolio. Yes. So do you literally go to France and knock on doors? Yes. It's a lot of networking, talking yes. to people. Yes. And people, you know, certain people really help you out by giving you references. Right. Uh, you know. Call this guy. We know this guy. Uh, you know, like, we we don't even distribute. You know, Luca Carrada was always a super big uh, advocate of us. Right. Although we don't work with him, but he's just a friend. Right. And I found out months and sometimes years He'll later that he word. had put the word in. Right. You know, because he's a, he's, he's a connector. He's one of those guys that everyone knows. So that, that was very helpful. And then in 2011, we purchased Willette Wines. Willette was another... Was Liz Willette had her own company. We absorbed her company into ours. What assets did she and, have? And she had uh, Jean-Louis Chauve and his estate, which was a big, a big deal. Uh, you know, some good California producers, uh, some, oh, some French producers, some Burgundy. Uh, David Qua, who we still work with today, and he's now the register of So right uh, with that acquisition. And, you know, all those things, they start to, you know... Right. After a certain point, you get to the point where you, instead of actively looking... You're, you're starting to filter because you, the key to this business is really to maintain the integrity of your portfolio. Right. And that's what it's all about. Right. Um, and that's you, where we are always, today. You're always trying to expand it when you can, right? Of course. I would guess that it gets tougher and tougher. You know, representation is there. There are a lot of guys that are smaller than you, a lot of guys that are bigger than you. It's always super competitive. I think one of the things from our point of view is is trying to keep the personal relationship as you get... I mean, we're over 100 producers now. And now we started to work with Daniel. So that's more producers. Talk but about that. When you say Daniel, what Daniel does that Jonas, mean? Daniel Jonas. He okay. started in November, I guess. We Daniel's a very well-known wine person in New York La and in Pola, the country. He works with Daniel Baloud right. for Dynex. Right. He started La Polay in the U.S., right. San Francisco, New York. Right. And he also has his own little his wine His own portfolio of wine that he's imp- either been importing or been the agent for. He had his own company called Jeroboam for a long time. Right. And then started selling his wine to, or bro- I guess brokering it through uh, Skernick. Right. So Skernick, who represents a ton of people, right. he was with them for a while. He recently for, made like a move yes. to you guys. Right. So that expands your portfolio even more with some really beautiful right. wines. Right. Some of them being what? Uh, we're working with we were. Again, can you this say? Can, and this can be complicated, but we already were working with Rouleau and Lafont, and now we have more of their wines. Okay. It's a. It's. It's probably a longer story than you want to get into okay. here. Uh, we're starting to work with uh, a few uh, Clouds Roque Roque in Cote Roti, which I've loved. I've liked their wines for a long time. We're starting to work with uh, Christophe Rumier. He's been a friend for a long time. And we actively tried to re- work with him in the past. I mean, basically what happened was we were looking around for other producers and we kept tripping over Daniel. So... At some point, we said, like... Are you always making a play? What We're, like, constant, one trip, ago. I don't know whether... Within six months, three different producers, we were both in negotiation with the, at the same time. One was in Chablis, one was in Anjou, and one was in Burgundy. And at some point, I think the light bulb went on and was just like, why are we competing with the same guy all the time when we have all these shared interests? I... 
been working to Paul A for a long time, knew Danny for a long time, used to buy wine from him at Jeroboam when I was at Zaki's all the time. You know, so we so knew each other and blah, blah, blah. It was just a matter of time where you can make the marriage it, and all It doesn't that. normally work, but it just happened. So, Brian, the duration of your time at Grand Cru, you sit through all this acquisition. Totally. So it must be a lot easier to walk into a retail account or a restaurant. For sure. Where there's sought-after wines, you know, some real cherries and all that. I guess your life gets easier. The volume goes up. Completely, yeah. It's, I'm fortunate to work with... Uh, a very focused, a very high-quality book. Right. Um, do in, in wine, like other businesses, do you got to buy this to get that? Uh, to some extent? To some, you have to, it depends on the company. Right. You know? A restaurant, let's say. Good restaurant. It really depends on how the companies run. Some companies run, they want you to be a good customer of the, a good customer of the portfolio. Some, some are really tit-for-tat, and some... I mean, we've all done it. I tried to cherry pick everybody. So the best customer is somebody who recognizes your portfolio. The best customer is somebody who's the like, whole range yeah, and has in, a need. He's into you know. I mean, people are into Rose, uh, Rosenthal. They're into Dressner. Right. They're Terry into David Bowles. You know, traditionally they're, they're into Skernick because they ha- they represent quality. Right. So you know, you're trying to follow in those footsteps. Kermit Lynch, whatever. Right. Yeah, eventually, I guess you form a relationship with that buyer, right, and that that turns into a connection. That yeah. Yeah. Plus, I mean, every restaurant store is different, so totally. they have different needs. Yeah. Um, so, you keep alluding that this could be long, but the function of an importer distributor in its least technical terms mm-hmm. is what? Bringing the wine from a producer. Walk me through this. You find the wine... Let's say through, you, through you, how we discussed through, through a relationship. Some, I found or pitch them we on found, your own. We we found producers. They mailed literally mailed bottles right to Can the you office. Represent us. Sent an email or not or put and you taste the wine. You go wow. I'll, Me I'll Godard talked to our who's a, a Beaujolais producer in Morgon. Mailed bottles. I we tasted them. I was like wow. She had been referred by our Fleury producer and. I was like, wow, these wines are really good. Like, I didn't even go there first. It's, we tasted through them. They were like, first vintage. I was like, you, you know, you're also, here's a little bit of the insight, insight to it. Is you're trying to project into the future. Right. To In what this, extent? To the perfect extent. You're trying to see if you can find a producer who has a little extra something, a little bit of personality that comes through in the wine and maybe you're projecting on their first vintage, right? Or second vintage, they're very, they're very, you know, you're, they're still using a, new barrels because you're making a professional calculation. You know, they don't want to use new barrels for this wine, but they have to use it because something's got to go in the new barrel. They got to stop so, start somewhere. So, you know, part of being an importer is getting behind it is to project into the future and see what the potential is. Right. And so that's you, a bit of the. So you identify craft. the producer. You decide to take them on. Right. And then you bring it in, and you try and introduce it to your sales staff, and then they give you the finger, and they think you're crazy, and then you know now you just, say like, "Come on, this is a let's little, play." This is a little technical, but distribution and representation in the U.S. is not one piece national, right? It's regional. It 
it, again for wine. Yes, or? it can be. We are a national importer for national distributor for some of the wines that we import, but a limited amount of states. You know, you'll do thirteen, fifteen states. It depends, or, right? It's yes. depends on the product. Right. It depends all. on the product and where they want to be and how much wine they have to sell, etc. You you <clears> do <throat> a lot in New York. We do mostly in New York right. and New Jersey is where we're based. Right. But we have expanded when we started with with Marquis d'Angerville and a few other producers who wanted to have one importer and one distributor for the whole country, we started to step up that part. And it adds a certain level of complexity. So that came about at the request of the producer? Yes. Like, will you guys do this? Yes. Isn't that... It was a response to a need. Isn't that one of those things you look up in the sky and go, thank you, God? I mean, is that a good thing? It's a great thing if it works, but then you have to, then you have to, you know, you're setting up... Because of the way the, the laws of the, you know, it's, as you know, the states, and especially with alcohol, everyone has different laws. It's very specific. Right. It's a it's, very tricky. It's complicated. Business and right. all. And not terrifically interesting to the layperson. So the relationship is made. The representation right. is done. Right. And you're literally shipping the wine into the states. You pick it up. You you're com- warehousing it. Yeah. And you're distributing. We have a warehouse. You pick it up. You consolidate containers. You bring it in, and then if all goes well, everything's great. The thing is then at that point you're in the position, like we are right now, over 100 producers. You know, that's a certain level of responsibility. You can't just say, well, you know, we dropped the ball this vintage. We didn't sell any of your wine. So we're going to skip a vintage. You don't, I mean, you you can't. You know, you have a certain level of responsibility now. You're at the plate for everybody. Right. And that's why they're, they're asking you. To, to represent them. Right. And, you know, you want to be, res- you know, it's a responsibility. Especially, especially, obviously, when you're dealing with... I have seen very clearly where producers have improved the quality of their wine due to the fact that we have started to distribute a significant quantity of their wine and started to put money in their pockets. And all of a sudden... You can see the quality of their wine going up, ratcheting up significantly vintage to vintage as they replace their tanks, their barrels, barrels whatever, their hire equipment. people. What, their yeah. equipment. They, they, don't, they can bottle all their wine all at the same time now instead of in different... That, that's a good thing. And you can see it. That's a good thing. Well, that's, yeah. So the wine comes in, and then Brian, the sales department, is responsible. Well, he also has a different role because he synthesizes information, and he also is helping our, our marketing of the wine. By feedback to you. From the market, or well, he can describe it. Well, I think that it's a little complicated, right? The wine shows up. So complicated. <laughs> well, the, the wine shows I'm up. Joking. But it's kind of our job not just to sell the wine, but to tell the story of each individual producer to the buyer, to kind of the front lines. So before it even gets in your glass in your wine store, we're dealing with really serious professionals who who love wine, who've made it their life. So there's a certain level of expectation of of storytelling, of tasting the wine, of knowledge that goes into even getting that wine that's, on the shelf. That's your approach. That's your mission, which exactly. is a good one. Exactly. Is that, does everyone take the time to do that? or different, I mean, I, different, different wines for, there are different wines for different purposes, I would say. But I mean the rest of the, your competitors. Oh, I no. Mean, I mean, are they out there? I think, starting, know, I think more and more people are. People are getting more. I mean, like every, every other industry, people are starting to market their product in that in that manner right 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 um so in, in in other words in the past certainly when i started out in wine you know people waited around for the uh parker or 
the wine spectator or somebody to to throw out a score, and then everybody would just chop it up and you know fork it over to their top accounts or whatever. But I want to get into social media sure, sure, sure. a little more towards right. you know the end of okay. it. But I, and tell me if I'm wrong here. I think social media has democratized wine because there are a lot of voices now. You, Core Quarter, other people that. The Parker thing may have weight, but it's not the only voice anymore. Do you feel, has that changed much? or? It, I think it's changed quite a bit, and, and, and obviously for the better. I was going to say, in a good way. Yeah. Uh, we couldn't have done, I, I wouldn't have enjoyed this job as much in the past without the advent of social media, I don't think. Because you would have been, you know, you would have been changed the game. Yeah, you would have been handcuffed to change the game. Yeah. And to be honest, the room is a lot more crowded. There are more people trying to reach that kind of that. But that I was going to ask you: Is there? I, I mean, is shelf space limited? Is there a glut of product in the market? I, I mean, do, do you do you feel that way, or there's you know the best guys will sell the best stuff, the good sales guys will get stuff on the shelf, or there's just a little too much going on? What do you think? I think there's more wine being sold today in New York than there has been in the last 10, 15 years. And the quality level is much, much, much higher. higher. It's a more competitive marketplace. So that's good then. Yeah, totally. There's a lot going on. It's, and a, a, lot can, of, you know, it's a very, you it's know. It's a renaissance. In analogous a to food. I mean. Exactly. In, in 19. Or restaurants in, in New exactly. York City. In 1995, what you, the food you had access to is completely different than what you have to today. Right. I mean, it's a different world, right? Grass-fed beef. I mean, come on. You know, wild fuck, whatever it is. People didn't even know. I worked with Dave, David Boulay in the early 90s, and he had descriptions on the menu like Dayboat Laugh, Dayboat Day Lobster, and all that stuff. And he used to send the... To, he used to send the prep cook up in, the, in, his, in his pickup truck on Sunday night to pick up the fish, and people thought he was insane. He, they thought he was insane. They would look at the menu, and they would, start, they would explode into laughter. Meantime... You're insane if you don't talk about the sourcing yeah, now, or farm to table or seasonal. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy the way things have changed. I right, talk to me about, since I've been doing the show, the natural wine movement, you know, has had a big presence. But since I've been doing the show, which is less than a year, the natural, the raw wine show came to Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of like the first time mm -hmm. that... Everybody knew what was going on, but they all congregated, and it was bustling in every sense. I mean, the producers were on one side, and there were a ton of them. The industry was there. The consumer was there. What's going on with the natural wine movement? Is that for real? I know a lot of the guys that make wine that you represent and a lot of people that you don't even realize have been making organically you know, grown grapes and wine and all of right. that. Is that a, is it a movement? Is it yeah. something that's happening? Is it here to stay? How are you involved? How does it affect you? You want me to go first? Uh, it's go very first. much a movement. I think it's, it's, it's something that's always been a part of a certain sect of wine, but it's now, it's now a buzzword. It's now in the air. And blown up a little. And it's now something that I think we're seeing a new generation of winemakers starting their wineries and being hyper-focused on these details. Right. And they're, they're doing that much better of a job communicating them than the previous generation because the tools through which you communicate are that much more readily available. And so you have guys who are at Raw who are, you know, maybe in their early 30s, started their winery a couple of years ago, are on Facebook, are on Instagram, are comfortable with email, and they're, they're selling wine in 
in Asia, they're selling wine in in the United States, and they're... So, Ned, it goes back to your point. Those guys can do well and exist in a world of social media. may have been a little harder many years back. Yeah, they wouldn't for, have had the same platform. Yeah, I mean, a movement like that. Yeah, their reach was that much more limited. Right. Um, but I think that's great. Yeah, I mean, there's some very, very interesting wines... You know, you could walk into an Aldo San wine bar and have some very classic wines and some interesting stuff, and then you can go to Rebel or Compagnie, and there's pet nets and orange wines. I mean, stuff that didn't even, you know, exist. So it's 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 very much out there. And the um, comparison to food, I think, is really useful because you you see that that food kind of had a certain trajectory, and now wine is using some of that same vocabulary to really. To really right. reach that person. Right? Well, restaurants used to be palaces. Then chefs became rock stars. Then wines became a thing. And then sommeliers. I had Kevin Zraeli on a couple months ago. I mean, he can remember when there were six guys in the city. Now he's saying there's six guys at one place, you right. know, which is sort of true. Yeah. And sommeliers are now rock stars. And again, that goes back to social media, how they position themselves. But also the whole you know, wine thing has changed. Um, I found a receipt from years ago that I had used as a bookmark in one of my wine books. And I was thinking back to buying wine then. And now there's maybe half a dozen wine stores open that have opened in that span. We're only talking four or five years. And there are stores that really take a lot of pride in presenting their product, teaching you about the yeah. community. It's, it's not just the Parker 94 exactly. This is five there's years. We're not talking about a decade. And the collections are more curated. Completely. You know, they're really <clears throat> picking stuff. Um, but, I, you know, the, 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 I think the thing to remember about natural and what's the best part of it, in my opinion, is it's making people like the Pinot you're going to taste, which is Sansouf. People experiment and question what they actually have to do in order to make wine. I mean, you know, 10 years ago, people did... I'd never heard of a Sansouf Pinot Noir. I mean, maybe somebody was making one. Maybe What is a Sansouf? No sulfur. Okay. So, so no... Sansouf. No, yeah. Right. Sorry. Yeah. So no sulfur, uh, which is very a la mode now, very current very more yeah. people are doing it but there's not a ton out there right there's more and more more and more, more, and more things but the so point being ch- that people are questioning what they actually have to do now with really good farming in order to get the wine state you know before people filtered the crap out of their wine because and there, and still some people do because right. they feel like i have to stabilize this thing because who knows what happens when it leaves my domain and now that's changing Less and that's for the good. Thing. Yeah, yeah. That's um, for the good of the consumer. Let's talk about, it's, it's the beginning of the year. So tell me, let's talk about some trends we think that are going to happen or some hot wine regions, winemakers and all of that. Um, but let's look back to 2016. If you had to characterize the biggest thing or things that happened in wine, in your opinion... Can you nail it to one or two things? Brian? I think looking back on 2016, I'm, I'm shocked at how much champagne everyone drank. That's true. Thank God. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the it kind of thing that... It was always celebratory. Totally, and, you totally. Know, now it's... Yeah, I, I think that as kind of a wine dork, you're, you're, one, of your, one of the easiest cards for you to play is champagne's really versatile. You should be drinking it more than once Oysters. a year. 
yeah, but but you see a whole a whole generation of, of wine buyers just really be as excited about champagne as they are about a wine, a still wine. So I, that I that boundary that. is blurred, and, and and you guys have a bunch of champagnes in your portfolio. We have a lot, and it's like the probably as successful as totally. any part. And of And they're our, brand it's new. It's a hot like category. we're constantly Savard. putting more c- containers of champagne on the water, and I'm always like, really. I can't believe it. And but you know, I still can't really figure it out because evidently uh you, you know, worldwide champagne is down a little bit and I talk to some top restaurant people and they say we can't sell champagne. And I'm like, well, how come we're selling so much champagne? You know, and a lot of it's the restaurants. So what what I is still it can't with, really 100% What is it with them? Are they buying stuff that's too expensive and No, it's these not are selling? like good customers of ours right. that buy other things and they but they're not they were not the champagne doesn't work. I'm like, I still don't 100% get it, but I agree with Brian. It's as think, a general statement, it's amazing how much champagne and how much enthusiasm there is. So that there. that's a great one. Any any other thing in 16 that sort of jumps out like that? What about the Loire Valley and, and how kind of successful we've been with varietals that? Well, that's just kind of us. But I mean, the Loire Valley has been hot for like since 2008. I mean, I think Loire and Beaujolais. And a lot of these regions now, maybe the Savoie is starting to happen. Right. In I France. think to your point, yeah. I think you bring a bigger picture, but like the Savoie, sure. you know, a couple of the places. And there's I, a lot of cheerleaders. It, it, the Pascaline, La Pelletier, right. you know, they're pushing all. But them. all that happened as a result of 2008, I think, because it broke the. It, it you know. People pe- had a shift towards had better to, value. People had so. to figure out a different way to be able to drink wine. They couldn't, you know, the prices were just. But that's, does that trickle up to you? You had to get wines? For sure. I mean, we were, we're there's sure, of course, there's an influence, you know. Yeah. You know, the Rumiers and all that were sitting around a little longer after 08. Then. In 2005, I couldn't sell Beaujolais because there wasn't now enough interest. Hot. The only person that was interested in, in Beaujolais in 2005 was John Gilman. Who's that? He's a uh, critic. Oh, okay. he has a small newsletter. That's okay. very influential. Um, anyway, and we're not talking about the Beaujolais Nouveau. We're no, talking no. about Cru Beaujolais. Cru Beaujolais. There's, there's can, eight, ten regions. That, you know, that ages very well. That ages very that well. Ages well. All right. So, good ones. What about seventeen? Do you anticipate things? Ha- you know, I think the champagne thing will continue to be there. Is there something, you know, that you think's going to jump out or? I think, unfortunately, in 17, you're going to see 2015 because it's <clears throat> considered to be universally very, very good European vintage and followed by, especially in Burgundy, a lot Wait, of... Wait, the 15 vintage? Yeah. Which will hit the market in the next... It'll hit the market in soon. this year at some right. point. A couple years for the in the most barrel. And, and... And what are we talking? Burgundy, Bordeaux? Uh, Burgundy, for sure... Every place that I've tasted or heard of, I, I'm not really conversing with Bordeaux at the moment, just because that's so far released so much later, uh, and I don't pay attention to it anymore. But um, I think you're going to see a lot of price speculation, very much like 2005, which really was a uh, inflection point of pricing, where things never went back to what they were. So I'm a little afraid of this time, and it's so compounded. So the pricing yeah. took a jump. Never went back. Now, was yeah. that based on the fact that the 05 vintage was a good vintage? It was, there was demand, and they It was a great vintage. Burgundy. I know Bordeaux was good. It was a great Burgundy vintage. Burgundy, and too. It is a great Burgundy vintage, yeah. Uh, you, know, you know, 
and other regions of France. In yeah, who wants to take less if you don't have to? Yeah, but the point was that it never came back, you know, and certain things like that was the last time I ever saw a reasonably priced bottle of Fred Mounier Musigny. Arrivederci. Crazy. Right. Um, the last thing I wanted to ask you before I ask you about social media is I always have trouble pronouncing his last name. What impact did Rudy Kernawayan have on... Uh, the on our business? Yeah, did it affect you as I don't an importer host? No. no, because, you know, it only, it, 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 if anything, it would only strengthen, strengthen our hand in the sense that we, of we have, you know, documentation and it's right. all direct, etc. Right. If anything, it's collecting the high, it's affecting the high-end collector uh, and through what channels the wine's getting here and the auction houses have to do a better job of that. So they know if it's, you know, they your, have to invest You're a producer through you guys. Why would it's, yeah. it's, more to our benefit for people to buy the wines direct on, on release. The funny thing in the documentary was when Ponceau was looking at the Acromero catalog and saw a picture of a wine that didn't exist in that vintage. I mean, that was it. The guy got on a plane. That was very funny. Yeah. All right, let's talk about social media. We broached it a little, but let's, let's talk about the uh, effects that it's had. And I think, Brian, you know, you embraced it from the beginning. You're... Ned and I didn't grow up with video games because they didn't have them. You kind of grew up with social media because sure. it was yeah pinball with real balls, you know. So what? Talk to me how you use it, how Grand Crew uses it, you know, how you've used it to an effect where it's really you know been successful. I think personally, I I used it to learn about wine and to learn about the wine business. I knew I knew Ned and a couple of the other partners at Grand Crew through Twitter. I, so you use it for discovery. Completely. I, I think right. it's it's one of the most interesting discovery tools out there. Because everybody's on it. Exactly. Now. And they started ramping up. Exactly. So that that's obvious. I mean, I do that too for the show, for personal water people drinking. What about for business? For business, I think it's the best way for us to reach our consumers at scale. Right? I mean, I, I love talking face-to-face to buyers at restaurants and retailers, but I also love delivering the, the, the most important part of a story from the producer himself to all of our buyers. And a lot of this comes at just visiting the producer. You know, I, I carry a camera around, I have my iPhone. So you're always at the ready. Exactly. Now, if you had to sort of narrow it down to what works really well. I mean, is it still Twitter? Is it Instagram? Does Snapchat come on the scene? Is Facebook the placeholder? I think for us, and we we have a very specific market and not a very large one, so I, I understand very well what the hundreds of buyers that we work with, what they want, what they want to hear. I would say Instagram's been the most, the most uh, interesting. So a lot of your effort is to trade. Completely. Even though it's a mass-use thing, your trade is oh, very yeah. much on it and you're playing Exactly, exactly. I think the fun part is when we see kind of that end consumer stumble across our content, get interested, get engaged. Because obviously our audiences now are to a point that they exceed our, our kind of customer base. Right. So there are, there are consumers out there who are right. hungry for information, yeah, who love I mean, our they'll wines. They'll discover the exactly. way you, know, you would have known. Exactly. Um, do you see any trends in social media? I mean, have things shifted? Is Twitter still 
and everybody's like, woe is me, is Twitter going to succeed? Is Twitter still powerful? I mean, do you use Snapchat? Has Instagram grown in your presence? It's funny, I was a little surprised that Snapchat didn't really take off in the wine community as quickly as I thought it would. Yeah. I think every... I think in a lot of places. Yeah. Every... I mean, it's it's a... It's an age demo thing. It's a technology. And it's, not, it's, an, it's not the wine buying it, exactly. demo. Exactly. I mean, even Instagram was kind of slow to adapt. I can think back to two years ago to where there was maybe half the number of right. wine people on it that there was today. And a lot of, I know firsthand people who were resistant to the idea of, of playing with wine on Instagram. And, right. But I think the guy that's comfortable with Instagram is going to shift to Instagram video before oh. he ever touches Snapchat. Totally, totally. And it's a good thing because at least he's driving video. Yeah, completely. Um, I'm going to ask you about apps in a few minutes. We have to take a break. We're going to take a quick break. We're talking to Ned Benedict, and we're talking to Brian Garcia of Grand Crew Selections. We'll be right back. I want to subject these guys to our wine list. And then we're going to start cracking open some bottles, of which we should have cracked already. Brian handed me a glass. I thought it was the Arbois, and it was the water. I was like, holy shit, this stuff sucks. And then I realized it was the water. But we're going to get into that. So we'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. Today's program is brought to you by the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese, period. Why? Lush grasslands, glacial water supply, fourth-generation cheesemakers, combining old-world tradition with the new ideas and highest standards. The very best milk. What do you think of when you think of Wisconsin cheese? For me, I think cheese curds, delicious fresh cheese curds, or deep-fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally any way, any time, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese Company, the operation behind the Pleasant Ridge Reserve cheese that's literally America's most awarded cheese. I think of the deliciously stinky Limburger and its long-storied history. I think about Raleigh's Dumbarton Blue, a perfect blend of English-style cheddar and notes of blue. I think of Emmy Roth's Grand Cru Chirchois, which was named 2016's World Champion at the World Championship Cheese Contest. Wisconsin is like the world champion of cheese, and once you start reading the list of cheeses made in Wisconsin on their website, you can see why. The Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board is a nonprofit organization funded entirely by Wisconsin's dairy farm families. Read more at eatwisconsincheese.com. And as soon as you're done listening to this podcast, eat Wisconsin cheese. It's a no-brainer. We're back. We're back with Ned Benedict and Brian Garcia from Grand Cru Selections. I want to subject these guys to my wine list, so I'm going to ask you a handful of questions, spontaneous, no long answers, you know, just sort of top of mind, and they're pretty simple. Here's the order. We'll go Ned, Brian. Can okay. you remember that? Got it. Okay. Right. Guys, what are you drinking now? What? what I, I don't mean like here. Like what's... 
been on the table more, you've been tasting a lot. I know it changes, so I'm asking you now. What do you? What's sort of on the table now? What am I drinking now? Uh, I don't know, Chablis. Okay. That's a, in the middle of the winter. Yeah. Okay. I drink most more white than red as a general. Generally. Drink. Yeah. Okay. Brian. Two thirds one. Light-bodied red wines from Spain. Uh, is so it the Rioja, Canary, Ribera, no, the Canary Islands, Ribera Sacra. Is are the Canary Islands considered Spanish wines? Or yes. Okay. By the way, I was going to suggest that I forgot, but of the 2017, not knowing a lot about Spanish wine, I would imagine that Spanish wine is going to continue to grow very well. I knew when I was in. Um, I think there's a lot of room. Um, Estella. Yes. And yeah. Thomas Carter, who's a great guy and a great wine guy, said, get me something different. He goes, you open? And he brought a wine from the Canary Islands, and it was delicious. They're, and they're really good. leave it to him to have it, to suggest exactly. it, and know that it was good. All right, favorite wine and food pairing. Something that, and don't say oysters and champagne. Okay, uh, so... My wife is Korean. She makes Korean food at home frequently. Some, you know, I don't know. Often. So what, what pairs well with uh, We have... Uh, You're talking a level of spice and diversity and flavors. So anything oxidized with slight oxidation works really well with... Give me specific... Uh, we, use a, we have a wine called DeFermo from Abruzzo. Italian. It's a Chardonnay and a Pecorino. They're uh, not Chardonnays, not... Uh, native, but uh, and it's from Abruzzo. You know where that is? In yes, s- in south of Rome. Right, and uh, it holds up to that kind. It of goes great. I okay. don't know why, but every time I think of it, I try and pull when when she makes kimchi jjigae. Or Can you like recall a producer for me? The producer we represent is called Defermo. Spell it. D E, and then the next word is F E R M O. And what are we talking retail? Uh, I don't know. Maybe like. 25 okay, maybe so 20 it's a, it's a wine. Ish. yeah i mean it's very well made right. i mean i'm not trying to just promote my own wine no 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 but no but but if you can a the concept wine of asian food with, with that has this fermented quality if you have a slightly oxidized nutty white wine which we're Give surrounded me in by general these another days. example of an oxidized nutty wine what would oh, uh, uh, Poufinet. okay who you're 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 drinking the, the successor to Poufinet right, right now. We'll, we'll but, talk I mean, about that in a minute. He's the king. Wines. Or one of them. Brian, give me a favorite wine and food pairing. I've been eating a lot of uh, Japanese food. It's kind of an obsession of mine, and I've discovered this yakitori place, so it's all chicken parts cooked on a grill. Not the one on 54th. Uh, Tori Shin. Tori Shin. I was yeah. thinking yakitori toto. Toto, yeah. yeah. It's around the corner. Yeah. But... Um, I, I like experimenting with really light-bodied reds or So maybe, the Spanish, what exactly, else? Exactly, or just, you know, really delicious Bourgogne Rouge. And that pairs well with exactly. the uh, skewers. Kind of, exactly, something that doesn't stand in the way but is, is still mm-hmm. there. Sounds good. All right, this is a tough question because it's a little political for you guys. But Uh-oh. favorite wine restaurant and or bar? And... I would assume you've been to all of them, a lot of them, but as a recommendation to our listeners with good service, good wine, good list, good value, what pops into your head? And I'll disclaim it for all your friends and customers well, that it's just one recommendation. It was, for sure. I think uh, Brian would agree. Uh, Jeff Kellogg at Mylino. Okay. Yeah. He 
a brief but very strong rule. Well, Jeff is gone? He well, moved to... Uh, San Francisco. Okay. Where did he go? To, uh, he North? is the wine director at Quince and Katonia. Okay. Hot. But he and crushed the uh, wine program at Maialino. Predominantly Italian? Uh, yeah. And very Piedmont-based, etc. Right. But he really... But also champagne. And champagne. Right. You and, know... And a special, a special shout-out to all the Danny Meyer restaurants. Totally. Because they have really got behind champagne, as we were talking about earlier. So the Union Square Hospitality Group, all those restaurants are really pro-small grower champagne. And nice it's made a big that. difference. It's nice funny. That. I was a, my pick is also a, a Danny Meyer Group restaurant. What is it? The Modern. Um, okay. The wine. He, he's got a great list. Michael Engelman, also known as the Alsatian Sensation. Okay. <laughs> he happens to be from Alsace. Right. <laughs> Hope you're listening. Hope you're listening. <laughs> Gary Vaynerchuk's favorite wine and food pairing was an Alsatian wine and Captain Crunch. Okay. Good <laughs> All right. Favorite all-time wine. Something that, you know, still memorable, changed your life. Not uh, changed your life, but, you know, made an impression. Okay. 71 Latash. Okay. I don't know. It's You know, we had a Jeroboam at, like, the second Paul A, and I drank, I don't know, two quarts. You did? Yeah. That's a fair... And we, did, I, we didn't finish it. I think, I think it, was, it might have been a Methuselah. But there was a long time ago. That's when you a could fair do amount like that. to evaluate that it's a good wine. Yeah. It was real. You, you know. Those were the old days. Yeah. Brian? I think that there's, there's definitely a nostalgia element for me, too. I'm thinking of... Uh, as much as I love Pinot, I love Syrah. And Noel Versailles Cornas is still... It was one of my gateway wines. So the producer is... His name was Noel Versailles. He passed away N-O-E-L. Oh, N-O-E-L, and then Verset, V-E-R-S-E-T. S-E-T. And he makes Syrah in the Northern Rhone. And what did you say, Cornas? Cornas. Okay. Exactly. Cornas is a region and exactly. a type of wine, Syrah based. Another region and of wine where you couldn't sell a bottle 10 years ago. Right. That is now like uh, Pierre super Go- a la mode. Pierre Gonon, exactly. St. Joseph, exactly. all the, you know, those guys. There was no such Alamon. thing. You couldn't sell Syrah right. from the Northern Rhone. Right. Um, best wine... It's funny, because I've been doing this since the first show, and Eric Asimov did a feature today. But mine is best wine under 15 bucks retail. You know, you're sending your buddy to get two bottles, because you're having two girls over, and you're cooking dinner, but you don't have the dough. So give me best wine, 15 and under, around 15, and give me a red and a white. So for white, I'm definitely in the Loire Valley. I'm thinking Muscadet. Muscadet is a very popular answer. Uh, Joe Landrone, Domaine de la Louvetrie. Pepier comes out. Totally. I was going to say Pepier. Marc Olivier. I'm especially partial to Joe Landrone, I think. Uh, Wait, spell that for me. J-O. Joe. his last name is L-A-N-D-R-O-N. Joe Landrone is a good Muscadet. Exactly. Okay. Give me a red. Red, I'm in Spain. I might need to stretch it to maybe 18 okay, or so. Okay, I'm okay with that. But I'd probably go with uh, <laughs> I'd probably go with uh, my favorite Spanish winery. They're they're called Envinate. Spell it. E N V I N A T E. Okay. They're four guys who are friends who make wine wines from different parts of Spain. And they're making great wines, lower price, good value. Exactly. Ned. Uh, 
as I was, I was actually going to say Pepier Muscadet just because Which it's, is a, it's a serious call. bottle of wine. I think it's still probably 15. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's kind of incredible. I think so. How about a red? A, a red, uh, that's really hard to find one for $15 these days. So I give me, is there something category or Cote de Rhone or not 15? Uh, it's, you know, I'm not good at this. Can we do two whites? What's the other Brian, one? Maybe, you give me a red. Maybe Germany. Oh, oh uh, give me one. A red. Cover Ned. You said Spain. I said Spain. Uh, red's tough um, for that price point. Yeah, right? it really is. White is the world could be your oyster if you want to dig around yeah. for it. All right, you leave it to, at that. Yeah. Now there's not a ton, and there's been some acquisition. But is there a best wine app out there? Is there one that works well? The one that you like? The one that you use? I've only ever used uh, Delectable. Okay. I think uh, what's what's the other big guy? Uh, Vivino. Okay, and Vivino came out after Delectable. No, I or? think before. Before? Yeah. It's funny because people were talking about Delectable, and now they're talking about Vivino. I can't get a handle on uh, which is best. All right, so you guys are going to stay with me, and we're going to taste some wines. You guys were kind enough to bring in not one but two bottles. So we're going to do our weekly wine sip. Every week we taste a different wine on air. This week we're going to taste the original wine was a 2015 Bodega Chakra Sin Azufre Pinot Noir from Patagonia, which is in Argentina. I think it's the Rio Negro area. And for Correct. your information, it's the most southerly wine-growing region in South America, maybe the world. I don't know. Um, the cool thing about this wine is it's, I think it's still part of the Piero and Ciso, yes. Della Rochetta, Tenuto Sanguido family. So you have another Italian that came into Argentina and decided to make good wine. There's a lot of Italians in Argentina. Yeah. Uh, Catena, right? The wine retails for 35 40 bucks. Yep. Not readily available but out there but Brian and I were talking that there are other Bodega Chakra Pinots that are available exactly. in places like wine. Actually Barda is very well priced. I'm not quite sure. The Barda, right. $20? Yeah, maybe? it's probably 20 or so. Um, Alright, so let's, uh, let's taste this and then we're going to taste, we're going to switch over to a wine. Um, so let's give it a sniff and let's throw it over the tongue. What are we getting on the nose here, Brian? I'm getting a lot of dark fruit, like almost dark cherry. It's wow. it's a dark pinot. It's intense. Yeah, I mean, it's got great, it's almost burgundian color, right? Totally. The nose is definitely fruit, darker fruits. Yeah, very fresh smelling. It doesn't smell yeah. like cooked fruit. No. It's more of a fresh fruit, juicy right. fruit. Let's give it a sip. It's got great acidity for pinot. It's yeah. It's refreshing to drink. What would you put the mouthfeel out of? A medium mouthfeel? Totally. Yeah, not light and, you know, not a heavy. Um, you definitely can feel the acidity, which is totally. nice. So that makes it a good food wine. Now, give me some So he makes this wine in concrete. He ferments it in concrete, and he puts it in used barrel. So there's no, there's no new wood at all. It's very unoaky. Exactly. Right, and, and obviously that's intentional. Yeah, nothing on the nose. No smoke, no vanilla. And it's old, uh, it's these are old vines, and they've never had phylloxera, so not to get too, too far south for phylloxera. I think. It's in the desert. Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah. All right. So give me some uh, 
taste descriptors. We said dark fruits. Yeah. I would say kind of a really elegant, earthy quality. Not, not mushroom earthy, more like... Herby. Exactly. Yeah, yeah but not green. More t- it's more tea-like than coffee-like. Yeah, like a, a green tea herb and all that. But and it's refreshing to drink it. It's yeah. got a little tannin for a pinot. Yeah, you well... Know, it's it, got a little good grip there. Right. Well, he uh, makes it with the bunches as well. He includes the bunches right. with the grapes, which is something that many Burgundians do and other Pinot producers, we call what, it. Let's talk about pairing this with foods. I know what I would say. I okay. think this is a good... Um, I mean, I love chicken and I love turkey. I'm not an experimental eater it's where totally, I'm eating all these game no, birds. Totally but this with is a bird. great okay. game Geese, duck. Yeah. And we have know. both been to this estate. It's really far away and hard to get to. Yeah, yeah. I think it's in the and middle of nowhere. I think you were there at Harvest, right? I was there at Harvest. I've been there twice. And... They shoot, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's like 120 acres. And the, all the people that work there, you know, like the tractor drivers and stuff like that, they have shotguns and they shoot the birds as they go over and you eat them at night. It's a self-sustaining estate. They grow their own vegetables. It's fantastic with bird. Perfect. So, wine. Oh, yeah. And that's not necessarily the case with all pinots. So this is a good... Because it's not extracted. Right. Right. It, it, the other thing I think this goes well with, it, believe it or not, is salmon. Yeah. Especially just depending on how you prepare it. Yeah. Like with a mushroom or something, this is like really, it's a nice foil. So, listen, I asked you guys to bring a wine. You know, I knew you would bring something interesting and good. I like the wine. You know, I asked the guests, do we like the We like this wine. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a well-made wine. It's reasonably priced. I guess the only downside is it's not as readily available. But I think chakra is kind of a hot product now. So any of the chakra products, you know, like you said, the Barda, which is probably... Uh, There's more, more of it, and it's more readily yeah. available. Um, is this, this wine, the 2016, when it comes out, will be more readily available to retail stores so it'll be so more. it'll start it'll start ramping up a little which is a good thing and i think it'll be more in the area of 30 dollars great price for a pinot noir i mean you're like 50 year old vines too it's yeah a, it's a, it, it shows it's, it's a real thing it shows it's not you know that dr pepper bright light red california crap that there's too much of it's it's also a testament to the potential of an area that most of most people haven't heard anything about right and Right. And to go back to the importation thing, this is not what you're looking to do, is try and convince people to exactly. drink Pinot Noir, Old Vine Pinot Noir from, you know, southern Antarctica. Right. <laughs> you know, this is not the way to start. No. All right. So we're lucky to have one more wine here. We'll wrap it up with the second wine. Um, I'm excited to try this. The guys brought in a 2015 Domaine du Pelican Arbois Sauvignon. How do I pronounce it? Sauvignon. Sauvignon Oui. Is that right? It's close enough. What is it? <laughs> it's Oui. Oui. Yeah. And there's a very famous winemaker from Volnay, D'Angerville, and he took over this estate and he's making these um, white wines with this grape. In the Jura region of France, right? right. Yeah. It's about now, an hour away from Burgundy. Now, is this readily available? I mean, is this yes, a little... Yes, so you could pick this up. Yes. It's an Arbois. It's exactly. Which is what? The region it's or... the town. The town, which is kind of a hot wine. 
Um, and it's the Sauvignon grape. Exactly. All right, so let's give it a sniff. It's got a great nose. Give me the descriptors, Brian. Uh, preserved lemon. Right. It smells savory in kind of like a chicken stock kind of way, yep. but not. All right, let's give it a sip. Definitely some acidity, right? It's an acidic it hits you grape. right away. It's, a, it's an acidic grape. But also um, texture. Mouth coating, right. but yeah. not oaky. a medium-bodied wine, but not, you know, mouth feeling. Not too oaky. Not oaky at but all. But, you know, there's nice oak there. Yeah. Um, all he right. raises it in big barrel, large format barrel to make it less oaky. Give me some uh, taste descriptors. Same thing on the nose, the lemon? Or? Yeah, I get a lot of, uh, I get almost like a stony, like a chalky I was going to say stone, mineral. Mm-hmm. And it's linear, right? Yeah. In yes, your mouth. Right. It's a linear attack. I get a little apple. Yeah, for somewhere sure. Somewhere in there. For sure. It's, you know, it's not the same, but you have, it has some qualities you get from Shannon. Exactly. Uh, Shannon Blanc from the Loire Valley. It's and a, and uh, some man. of the same application with food, I would argue. Yeah. And even so let, Chardonnay from Burgundy. Let's talk about food. What's a good uh, pairing for this? The obvious stuff, fish. And chicken. Tastes like chicken. I'd, uh, I'd drink this with sushi. Great sushi wine. Yeah, Raw sure. scallop. So seafood. Right. Totally. I can, sushi. I could see chicken. myself drinking a whole bottle of this with some steamers. Hot and day. it's also a grape that's flexible in the sense that this is a topped up. Very and made in a bit of a Burgundian style. It's very, it's in just that style. Uh, there's other guys who make it in a different, completely different way. I mean, uh, uh, Pouffinet makes it, his wines more oxidative, and they're Pouffinet is another winemaker that makes this type of that wine. That makes this type of wine, but stylistically, side by side, it'd be a little different. I would that. say they're completely different. Okay, and with the, the level of oxygen in his winemaking, it that wine becomes a different thing at the table. And you can, it's very flexible. Right. Uh, it's hard to. There's a big Gaga cult following for like the Auvergnois. Yep. Is this closer to that or the Pouffinet or is it hard to say? No, I, I think that, that uh, Pouffinet makes wines that are probably closer to the. Right. Just in the terms of their wildness. Auvergnois also tops up his, some of his white wines, but. This is. Um, he makes a super clean Chardonnay that's probably one of the best Chardonnays. For sure, yeah. it's one of the best but Chardonnays. But this is a terrific wine. Yeah. I mean, this is delicious. It's, it's mouth-filling. And again, to go back to what we said, talked about earlier, this is a new estate, or right. it's a new combination of factors. And the thing to see is, where do they go from here? Exactly. In my mind. Right. That's what I'm looking for as well. Um, how many, so D'Angerville, how many vintages has he done of this? This is the... 12 was the first one. Exactly. So it's, it's, the, it's very recent. Very recent. So, so that's the 2015 Domaine du Pelican Arbois Sauvignon uh, Oui. Uh, about, what, 40 bucks? 35 it's 45 dollars. 45 bucks. And... We're going to try and keep it there. For I the, think uh, for a nice meal... That pair as well. This is a terrific and interesting wine to bring. You don't have to bring a Chablis or a Chardonnay. You could wow some people with this. Well, this is the reason that he, uh, uh, Guillaume d'Angerville and others have gone to the Jura is because while it's not an inexpensive wine, it's an ageable wine that you can buy for at $45 as the price of Burgundy. He couldn't 
find any more Volnay v- vineyards to right. buy, yet he wanted to make more wine. Which is a great move for a guy like that to come into and a region and, and you know, to knock out find this like kind that. of quality. Absolutely. You know. And it's a testament to the region I, and what's possible. I right? like it a lot. All right, guys, thank you for bringing that wine in. We're going to wrap everything up. If you have a question, a wine happening, or an event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's samatthegrapenation.com. Follow us on Twitter at Ben Ruby. Follow us at Instagram at S Ben Ruby. I got yelled at by Brian because my Twitter and Instagram <laughs> are not the same thing. There's an F- <laughs> S in front of the uh, Instagram, and he ain't wrong. And follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. We want to thank our guests today, Ned Benedict and Brian Garcia from Grand Cru Selections. We talked about a lot of their wines. Uh, We talked specifically about some of their producers. So look out uh, for their wines on the... uh, uh, Facebook page will list the wine list and will list the wines. So if you want, you know, to look for these wines, um, you'll be able to get them on the site. Thanks to our engineer Vitor. I think this is his first show, uh, his first Grape Nation, and his first week on the job. But he's a very prolific uh, engineer and music guy. So this isn't new to him. Thank you to everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Great Nation. Thank you. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.